Good morning, dear saints, and blessed epiphany. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Thursday, February 8th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Today we take up Deuteronomy chapter 3, which continues Moses' retrospective on Israel's journey to the promised land. He focuses on their encounters and their victories over the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. It details the allocation of conquered lands to the tribes of Reuben and Gabd and the half-tribe of Manasseh, while also highlighting Moses' personal disappointment, to say the least, at being forbidden by God to enter into the promised land. This chapter will underscore the themes of divine providence and leadership and the consequences of disobeying God. Folks, there are so many ways for you to get in touch with us. You can reach out to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. I'll be there. You can also call 1-800-730-2727, but not today because this is pre-recorded. Whether you tune in over the air, online at kfuo.org, maybe you listen like on one of those radio podcasts or you know one of those podcasting apps, maybe even through your smart speaker. Did you know you could do that? No matter how you're joining us, thanks for tuning in. You're the reason we're here. So settle in. Open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. Well, joining me this morning is a guest returning to the show. It's the Reverend Matthew Worm. He's the pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Brookings, South Dakota. Good morning, Pastor Worm, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Uh, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you here once again on Thy Strong Word. It's been a little while since I've been a guest, so I thank you very much. And Jenny there in the office uh, at the radio station helped getting this uh, put together for us today. And I pray it's a blessing for all the listeners out there. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I and I hope so, too. Um, I, I don't think you've been on the program since I've been the host. Is that correct? Um, I believe you're yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so that's why I uh, was, when I look back at my notes, I always like to see who I've had on. Uh, this is my third year. I, I would like then, if you don't mind, or I, actually it's my second year, if, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about yourself, how God is working through you uh, and the saints there where you're serving and, uh, you know, family, well, as little or as much as you'd like to, the people to know. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, I haven't done Thy Strong Word for a while. Uh, the Lord blessed us with twins a few years back, and now I'm uh, finally getting out of the fog of, of all that as they're uh, four years old now, so I can kind of uh, take on a little bit more than, well, what was the bare minimum and, and other things around here. But yeah, I've been the pastor here at Mount Calvary Lutheran in Brookings, South Dakota for the last 10 years, going on 11 now. Uh, we are uh, a congregation that ministers to all the students and the faculty and all the all the folks at SDSU at South Dakota State University, the current FCS football champions. Um, so that's kind of the, the claim to fame around here. Uh, so it's a really, truly a blessing to have uh, so many college students join us for divine service every Sunday for Bible studies and other activities during the week. It's a key part of our work in our, in our ministry here. I got an associate pastor, uh, Micah Bauer, and he does a fantastic job uh, working with the college students. Uh, 
as well. Brookings is a is a growing community. Uh, there's a lot happening here in town, and uh, we're a, we're a busy church with a lot going on. Um, the work of spreading the gospel and bringing the truth of Jesus Christ into a world that is ever more confused about what truth is. Uh, a question that um, uh, that that Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? That question still echoes yet today. And we do have the truth. We got Jesus. He says, I'm the truth, way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he wants everybody to come to the Father. So we get to show them the works of Jesus and the way to salvation. That's great. I mean, you know, we think about college atmospheres and if, if you understand sort of what's out on social media and you understand the news today and some of the struggles that colleges are having, both Christian and non-Christian colleges, state schools too, there is a search for truth, but many might argue that truth is being actively obscured in favor of, you know, different political agendas, et cetera, et cetera. So it must be, I think, in a way, difficult to minister to college-age young people who are, I think, in their hearts seeking for truth and yet being pulled in so many different directions and so many of those directions contrary to the Word of God. Yeah, that is very true. Uh, but as the divide, uh, I think, greatens between reality and Im imagined facts and reality, uh, the more uh, people break up and hit against that that wall of their imagination and say, well, I'm going to search for what is real, what is true. And, uh, and well, we got that in spades, you know, in, in the authority of Scripture, uh, the archaeological evidence of it, the textual evidence of the truth and and proofs of scripture, um, all of all of that that the Holy Spirit confirms in us by the power of his word, that Jesus was a real person. He really did die on a cross under Pontius Pilate. And he really did rise again from the dead. And he said he's coming back. So he's got a good track record of holding true to his word. And so I bet he's going to come back and we got to get ready for that day. That's the message, isn't it? Well, when we look at our text for today, I guess times were quite different. You know, we have this Deuteronomy, this second giving of the law, but we don't really get into that second giving of the law part for another chapter or so. So where we're at now is seeing how Moses in these sermons or these speeches, however you want to call them, we see him reflecting back on where they've come from and, of course, where they're end up going, which is the promised land. Today's passage is uh, important because we see a little bit from Moses how he's discouraged. He he asks God, you know, hey, I, can I go in? And, and he's denied yet again. That's a lot of stuff that we'll get to. Uh, before we dive into anything more, though, uh, it's a good idea to start our time together in prayer. So would you do that for us, please? I'd be happy to. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, Eternal Father, you have given us your eternal word uh, that the book of Revelation flies high above. Uh, and so lift our gaze away from us, uh, away from our own selfishness, our own sin, uh, away from the chaos of the world, up to the, the ordered reality that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, um, in his fulfillment of, of all of the Old Testament, yeah, that we might be comforted, and that our hearts might have confidence that Christ is with us and we are with him, and he's going to come again and make all things new. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. See, okay. Phil, if it's, it's, if it's okay, could I take just a, a couple minutes uh, uh, to, to review a little bit on chapters one and two? Because I think that, you know, for our listeners, if they didn't, you know, follow in yesterday or on chapter one, uh, just to give sort of a foundation of where we're at before we get into chapter three. 
Pastor, you read my mind. That's exactly what I was about to ask you to do. So let's do it. That sounds great. Review uh, where we've been so that we know where we're going, which is kind of what Moses is doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so kind of just to start off with a couple themes of the book of Deuteronomy, the, the word bless comes out 46 times. And so uh, though the law is given and there's uh, some rough, you know, difficult kind of things to hear, especially when you get into devoting to destruction and what that means, uh, that the aim of God's law is to bless. You know, sometimes I think uh, Christians these days, especially our evangelical friends, uh, some of them say, well, the Old Testament, that's a God of wrath. That's, that's a mean God. And there's a new God in the New Testament. That's Jesus. And Jesus is love and love is love is love. Um, you know, God does give us his law uh, as his word, and his word is good, um, and his law is good for us. Uh, a loving parent is one who toes the line, who is disciplined, who keeps their children disciplined, and uh, who warns them of, of dangers, and is also just, and follows through on the consequences. So we hear about uh, the Lord following through on the consequences of of his word to Moses. In our minds, it might think a little trivial, but nonetheless, he's God, and he has purpose for all that all that he says and, and does. Uh, a number of years ago, I was visiting with a guy in my ministerium. He had his doctorate from Harvard. Uh, he's an ELCA pastor. And I said, um, all of Scripture points to Christ. And he took me to task. He said, what? All of Scripture doesn't point to Christ. Look at all these old things in the Old Testament and all the guts and the gore and, uh, and the wrath of God. And that doesn't point, point to Jesus. And I said, no, no, it does. Uh, all of the all of the Old Testament points to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's covenant, His promise uh, to, to to Abraham, to Isaac, to Moses, right back going back to Noah, Adam and Eve. Um, all of it does point to Christ. So keep that in mind whenever you you read any point of Scripture, especially the difficult teachings, um, for us to understand and kind of get our minds wrapped around in the Old Testament. So another theme of the book of, of uh, Deuteronomy is that God desires an ordered people. So they come out of chaos. They come out of a slavery, out of, out of chaos. And there's good parallels for us in our world today that seems very chaotic. Uh, God's word orders us for, uh, for good purpose. And then kind of a final theme of the book of Judges is that the Lord, or sorry, uh, Deuteronomy is that he judges with truth. So as earlier we talked about uh, truth, um, all of this this points to the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's promises being fulfilled. In chapter 1, uh, we hear about Moses not being able to go into the promised land. If you, know, if you recall that, uh, Moses was prohibited uh, to see it. He could only see the promised land from afar, but he would not go in because he did not follow the Lord's word. He got a little upset. Um, and because he didn't follow God's word, there was consequences to it. Um, but he, he says in verse 37 of chapter 1, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. So it's, Moses is this representative for the people of God. And so he was prohibited from going in on his sin and also on their continual grumbling. But well, in the wilderness, they lacked nothing. They were very blessed. Kind of a neat thing in, in chapter 2 that there's these giants, these Anakim, these Rephidim. Uh, archaeological evidence actually is fascinating on that, of these uh, massive skeletons uh, that were found. Uh, they wandered around in the wilderness in the area of Kadesh Barnea, uh, which is uh, like in the southern end of what is now now Israel. Uh, kind of in that area, definitely a, a, a wasteland. And there's this constant theme of their grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. You get on to to chapter 2, and you have Sihon. Uh, he's given to the hand of, of Israel. 
Um, and they devote everything to destruction there. And probably yesterday he talked a little bit about devoting to destruction, and we'll talk about that uh, a bit as well. So now we get to, uh, to chapter 3, and we are in, uh, we have the uh, defeat of the king of Og. So we'll, we'll pick it up there. Excellent. Let's do just that. I'm going to read, oh, probably through verse 11, um, okay. or until I feel like stopping. Here we go. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrai. But Yahweh said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So Yahweh our God gave into our hands Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them, sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls and gates and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land uh, at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians called Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites called it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salika and Edrai, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. Parenthetically, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit? All right, we're going to pause there. He's in the middle of a thought, but we're going to pause there. So back up to the top. So he's recalling this defeat of King Og, you know, and when we think of wars today, we think back on them almost as necessary evils, right? We're fighting uh, fascists or Nazis, we're, we're liberating people, we're, we're fighting against tyrants and dictators. Um, I, I'm sure that's the case here too, but when they look back on these wars, they saw more than just their hand conquering the enemies for good or for bad. They saw the hand of God working for their benefit. Is that a good way to understand it? Yeah, exactly. And it's the Lord who fights for them. Um, there's a number of instances in, in scripture where the um, you know, was the conquest of, um, especially there in the land of Canaan, um, where the Lord whittled down his people, his, his fighters, so that they would, it would be undeniable that it was the Lord who, who gave them into your hand. You know, you kind of see that a little bit in um, different sporting events where, uh, say, a team comes to the field a little bit too uh, cocky, a little bit too confident in themselves. And then before you know it, the underdogs, you know, got them 21 points down or something, something like that. So it, it's the, the Lord has to fight and the Lord has to give the victories. And and the battle is the Lord's is, is this other theme that we hear. And part of that is that everything then is is devoted to the Lord. Um, 
Uh, it's we have this phrase here. What was that in verse verse six? Uh, devoted to destruction. Um, kind of getting ahead of myself a, a little bit there. Uh, devoting every, uh, devoting to destruction every city, all these cities, the men, the women, and children, or the livestock and the spoil of the cities they took as plunder. Now that's a uh, kind of a hard teaching for us. Like, well, what does devoting to destruction mean? It means killing. It means destroying. It means burning. It means tearing down. Uh, but I think we need to look at this as well as the Lord uh, sanctifying his people. Well, his people are sanctified. And then the land in which they have as well are to dwell in. That is to be sanctified as well. You know, thankfully here in the New Testament era, um, and we in our Lutheran tradition, we say everything is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. We don't have to go around uh, taking up the sword as, as the church and doing these things. But in the Old Testament, that was uh, very much so. And on all of these different pictures of uh, putting away the sin, killing the sin, destroying the sin, here it's represented in the king of Sihon, the king of Og, uh, we do that now through confession absolution, where we, uh, we form our lips around our sin, uh, we confess it, we spit the words out, and then that is, is put to death uh, by Christ. The words of absolution, um, and instead by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. And so we can have this confidence now that, uh, that we ourselves are made holy by the word of God and that that sin that, that dwelled in us has now died. We also remember this in, in baptism, which is a daily dying to sin and rising to, uh, to new, new life in Christ. So I think for our hearers, as we hear this phrase over and over again, uh, in the conquest of the land, they devoted it to destruction. What it is, is a pointing to Christ. It's a prefiguring of, of, uh, of Christ and how he makes us holy. Here it was the, the, the land was to be made holy. And in a number of instances, we'll get to that a little later probably, uh, is that when they didn't devote everything to destruction, when they kept uh, some of the remnants, especially the sacred objects uh, used in worship to the foreign gods, well, the people of Israel, their hearts were led astray, away from the true God and his holiness, uh, back to chaos, back to darkness, back to the evil one um, through, their, through their idolatry. Uh, so a couple things here um, as we push our way through verse uh, 11. So the, the walls of these cities, they were thick. Uh, the Lutheran Study Bible says that archaeologists, archaeologists have discovered stone doors 18 inches thick, secured by bars. Uh, that's pretty heavy duty. Uh, evidently. And then walls four foot thick built for built from stacks of rocks without cement. Uh, that's a lot of a lot of mass to move. So they conquered these cities, many of them they they totally destroyed and 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 took down. Um this whole area in this this land, so verse eight says, So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, would be on the Jordan. This is the east side of the Jordan, not the promised land, of course. Um from the valley on Mount Hermon. Uh, while the Amorites, uh, and then all the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and, and all Bashan. And so if you can imagine in your mind uh, the, the geography of the Middle East, and many of us maybe have a little bit more fresh understanding of the geography of the Middle East because of this war in, in Israel and in pa uh, Palestine, the Gaza Strip and so forth. But the, the area of, um, of, of Moab, of Heshbon, uh, of these other places is down south. And so this is a conquest that takes the people from wandering in the wilderness down south in the Transjordan. So that would be to the east of the Jordan, uh, to the south and to the east of, of the Salt Sea. 
um, all the way going up all the way north to the Sea of Galilee, uh, to, to Bashan, and to the plains of Damascus, uh, to Mount Hermon, even north of there. And so uh, geography today, now you get up into the land of the country of Jordan and the country of Syria as well. And so this conquest uh, all the way up to Mount Hermon is about a 120-mile conquest. So uh, if you can like think in your mind geograph geographically how far 120 miles is, uh, we here at, in, in Brookings, where our exit is 133 or 132, something like that. And so that's 133 miles from the, the Nebraska border. So that's an area, that's hundreds of square, thousands of square miles uh, that, they, that they conquered. And they conquered all the different cities along the way. And so the inhabitants then of, uh, of Canaan, you know, for, for all this time had, had viewed this, uh, this press of the people of Israel that came up out of slavery out of Egypt probably heard the the accounts of the sights and the smells of the everything that happened at, at Mount Sinai in the wilderness uh, and, and so they're afraid and the remarkable thing here is that uh, the Lord gives into their hands these giants um, this uh, this bed of uh, of og that was a bed of iron his bed was probably like 15 feet long that's you know, seven feet wide. This guy was literally twice the size of every other man. Mm -hmm. And the Lord gave him into his in, into their hands. Uh, another well, kind that's of. What I was well, well. Before you go even further, I, you know, when you think of these, uh, what do you call them? Giants, right? Races of giants. You, you think of the Nephilim, the Anakim, the Imim, which is I think the same here, Zumim, Anakim, but this Rephaim. Um, yeah, just I mean, maybe you're getting ready to, but just flesh that out a little more for those for those who kind of hear these sorts of things in the Bible, and they might think of Goliath, or they might think of Lord forbid ancient aliens on the Learning Channel or the History Channel or whatever channel it's on nowadays. So let's let's talk just a little bit about uh, even though it's not the focus of this text, who are these people they're running into, and what way are they giant or? Giants? I mean, how do we understand that? I guess, brother. Um, I, I maybe it kind of seemed like you're leading me with a question here, and I don't exactly know what is it you're exactly looking for. Maybe you got more understanding information on on Rephaim, but um, I was going to talk more about like the, the the spiritual alliances they have with their foreign gods in, in this land. Um, oh, I mean, if you'd like to talk about that, that's fine. There's no there's no hidden questions here. When okay. I said what are the Rephaim, I just want to know what they are. That's all. Uh, <laughs> uh, giant giants. Um, uh, just people who were, were, were big for some reason. Um, maybe I knew some more about this, but then I forgot about it already. Uh, but I was gonna, I was gonna talk about the, the connection to the devoting to destruction, all of this. And I think it's significant that they press all the way up to uh, the Sidonians up there at Mount Hermon, which is in the northern area. Uh, you might recall from other places in scripture, um, a queen who was from the, the area of Sidon and it was Jezebel and she was the king's daughter up there. And of all of the, the kings and queens of Israel, the worst were Ahab and Jezebel by, by far. Um, and Jezebel got her just reward for all of her evil and, and she, was, she was killed and her body, well, was eaten by, by dogs, not a pleasant sight at all. And so, uh, but up in that area and in that land, they worshipped Baal and specifically Ashtoreth. And that comes out all uh, oftentimes in, 
in the Old Testament, certainly in the conquest. And as the people of Israel would continue to um, worship these other gods, especially the Baals, uh, Baal the pantheon, all the different demigods that come from him and, and Ashtoreth as the mom god. And uh, uh, the, it's also kind of in this, this area, in this culture to the, to the north, like this would be where Jordan, Syria, uh, the northern part of Israel now sort of intersect. Um, Jesus, uh, he went up there as well, and he went across the, the Sea of Galilee, goes up into the area of the Gadarenes, or the Ga uh, Gasserine, uh, yeah, Gadarenes. And that's where the demon-possessed man um, jumps, out of, uh, jumps out at the road. Imagine it would be like road close signs. His, his followers say, hey, don't, don't go that way. There's a crazy man who uh, lives amongst the tombs, and he's been chained with iron chains many times and shackles, and he's broken free from them. Um, and uh, uh, the guy is literally demon-possessed. And, and so it's in this area of like really weird darkness, um, of, of abject evil that even the people of Israel press, but in that area especially, they didn't cleanse all of, all of the land. But getting back to this idea of cleansing, uh, recently I, I had this occasion to uh, have the opportunity to uh, burn a number of books and other things that were uh, straight up occult uh, of the devil and a lot of other Gnostic writings there too, which I argue, I would say very convincingly that it's it's absolutely of the devil too. And so when you have something, an area, uh, an element, a land, something like that, that has been used in spiritual purposes in worship of the evil one, has been consecrated for the works of darkness to bring about chaos and not order, to keep people in darkness and keep the light away from them, uh, we have this example in the Old Testament of devoting it to destruction, of burning it, crushing it, uh, destroying it in, in every way that you, you possibly can, because it is evil, it is of the devil. But the uh, the worship of Baal and, and Ashtoreth did continue because they didn't completely follow the Lord's word and, and devote everything to destruction in all places. Well, I was going to interject here. So my audience loves to hear about practical applications of Old Testament scriptures and or of all the scriptures. And so you threw out there that you engaged in a burning of such things. Tell us a little bit more about that. What did that look like? What what was the context and content of those things? Um, well, I, I uh, was making visitation on on one of my members, and my member uh, said, I got this problem with my, my son, and he's doing these things. Of course, he's you know baptized, confirmed at our congregation. And uh, somewhere along the way, uh, he opened himself up to this uh, this Gnostic teaching uh, of, um, well, it's called the Third Eye. Joe Rogan's all about it. Um, the, he, he advocates the use of DMT, which is a hallucinogenic, to open up the pineal gland in, in one's brain. Uh, and that, that then opens your mind to this greater consciousness and this unity with uh, the supreme divine being. By the way, what I'm saying, everything here is all Gnostic. It's uh, Hinduism and Buddhism that is mixed together. That's why the Hindus, I believe, have that dot kind of in the center of their head is to, uh, to remind them of, uh, of the third eye and this consciousness that they are uh, trying to ascend to. And so we, and that was paired together with like anti-Semitic um, occultic books and stuff. And anyway, he ended up in big trouble and his parents were at their wits end. And they said, he's got like this altar set up in his room and oh, can I go look at it? And so he had all these various Gnostic and occultic books stacked up and 
and Bibles on top of that. And that's what Gnosticism does, is it, it's, a, it's a heresy, even predates Christ. It's a heresy that combines like all, it's like a spirituality buffet. Yeah, you pick and choose what you like about all the different spiritualities out there um, and think, well, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can with what I have here, and I have this new uh, experience and, and revelation and understanding to myself, so I'm going to go uh, worship this new new idol. And oftentimes, like Gnostic stuff really does attach itself with idols today, and, and you see it in the type of jewelry that people wear. Um, it's even combined with like the, the lore of the Knights Templar, um, uh, with the Masons as well, you get in, into understanding of uh, the religion of the Masons, the spirituality of the Masons. Masons, you get up to the 32nd, I think 33 degree Mason rites and orders, and that's just full out devil worship. It's it's absolutely occultic. Um, but but you see these symbols, right? Um, that's why we, as Lutherans, say the Masonic symbols are no good uh, because it's a symbol of an idol that a worship you're giving your heart you're putting your trust in someone other than the triune god and it goes against the uh, the first commandment you shall have no other other gods and so this this first commandment that the lord gives to moses to give to his people they go into a land of a plethora of gods just dozens and dozens lots of different gods you, you know you got a, a different god to pray to because you got a, a hangnail right um all sorts of them but the most popular gods are the fertility gods of, of Baal and, 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 and Ashtoreth. Baal was more for fertility of the land, rain, and so forth. Um, Ashtoreth paired together to that as well, but then also for fertility for animals and for people. And the manner in which um, especially Ashtoreth was, was worshipped uh, was in a, in a sexual model. Um, don't necessarily advise this, uh, but the, the, the figurines of of what Ashtoreth looked like in the archaeological evidence dating back to like 3,000 years. Um, evidently are the similar types of things that you might find at an adult mm, pleasure store. This may be a delicate way to put it, but that's how you, you they were worshipped. So, so they were I think, phallic in nature. Yeah, there you go. Um, also, uh, the way that the Celtics would, would join around uh, sacred trees and, and worship, it's such a similar type of worship and spirituality to the worship of Ashtoreth, you know, thousand, 2,000 years earlier. Anyways, well, getting back to that. I well, I was going to say, before we get back to it, I think that's all good information for understanding what the people were up against yes. and what they continue to be up against, even into the New Testament and, as you've pointed out, even today. But what we're going to have to do right now, though, is take a break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going to pick right back up with our text. Thank you for that excursus, Pastor Worm. But we will see you as we keep on going through Deuteronomy chapter 3. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Well, 
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Matthew Worm. He's the pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Brookings, South Dakota. Don't forget, folks, that you can reach out to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Be sure to spell it right. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. I'm there. You can send me a friend request. And although not today, but if you want to call in with your comments or questions, you can because we're live. We're going to be live most of the time coming up in March. We're going to be live about every day. It's 800-730-2727. So rewind that. Write that number down. Be sure to use that when we go live. All right. Now back to our text, Pastor Worm. Yes, we don't want to neglect our text, but I was just so interested in that, what you were talking about. Um, let's, uh, move into, well, no, I tell you what, you keep your thought going and then we'll add the verses as you want. Yeah. Well, I'll just wrap up there uh, on that thought. And so I, I think that when you understand the depth of the, of the evil, like these weren't just ignorant people, uh, in this land across the Jordan, nor were the Canaanites, uh, uh, ignorant people of God, of his word, of his power, of, of what he had done. This is a land of Abraham, right? And so the the people know the history of their fathers, but they have specifically chosen to reject it in chasing after the the pleasures of the world and, and putting their hearts in, in darkness and not in light. And they're, you know, there's they worship Molech, they throw their children to the fire. Uh, these are not like these are hardened moral criminals in in so many ways. And I think the Lord has the prerogative as judge to command and do what he wants to say and do for his people because we are his creation. And if he so choose to you know, wash all the people off the face of the earth because the intention of their heart was only evil all the time, Genesis 6, well, I think he has the prerogative to say, uh, I'm going to start anew with this land and we need to cleanse this land of the uh, spiritual defilement of it all. And it's going to be a land that's given to my chosen people and it's going to be for their blessing. Well, you mentioned earlier how some people mistakenly have this idea that, you know, well, the old, the God of the Old Testament is different or at least of a different disposition than the God of the New Testament. And But I think it's stuff like this that causes them to think that because – um, God has changed in some ways in which he He organizes his kingdom. So, for instance, we aren't a, a theocracy whereby we are the direct agents of his wrath. Now, of course, we look to Jesus. So there have been changes, and I say that kind of with an asterisk because it, it, it's not changing God's plan that's been set from beginning, but it's a change from our perspective because we're not sent out to go and judge the lands by destroying the Asherah poles and stuff. Otherwise, Christians might be waging wars against India and going in there and tearing down all the Hindu temples. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't think that was appropriate. Uh, no, no, not not at all. So we uh, we just look to Christ uh, in, in all things, and we'll see him all throughout the Old Testament. See, I really want to get to um, Moses being forbidden to get into land, and if I keep going off on rabbit trails, we'll never get there, Phil. Well, that's the nature of this particular program. We like the rabbit trails, but I'll go ahead and jump in with verse 12. Here we go. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. 
The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the king of Og, that is all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Parenthetically, all that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair the Manasite took the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites, and the Maakathites, and called the villages after his own name. Have a off Jair, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border from Chinnereth, as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah. And I commanded you at that time, saying, Yahweh your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that Yahweh your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I have commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that Yahweh your God has done to these two kings, so will Yahweh do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is Yahweh your God who fights for you. Yeah, and we started the whole conversation with that idea. So yeah, so quickly, before we can get into uh, Moses being forbidden to enter the promised land again and his reflections on it, um, we have the division, we have the dividing up of the, of the, um, of the land here. Yeah, the land is, is given to um, the different uh, tribes of, of Israel. You have Manasseh and the, the half-tribe there. Uh, Machir, he's the, the son of Manasseh. So it's how it's split up in verse 15. Uh, gives Gilead and, and, and so forth and the rest. All. And so this geography is, once again, moving from south to north on the east side of the Jordan River. And so this is the area that those, um, those tribes of Israel then, then possessed. Uh, verse 18 is rather interesting. He says there, I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. So all of your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel, your wives, little ones, and so forth, um, shall remain back. So we have then, if you if you can imagine, all the, the people, all the armies of, of Israel stretched out for all of this, this space, 120 miles from north to south, broken up in there you know, tribal areas, but they're getting ready then to, for the conquest in, into Canaan. So the books of, of Joshua and then the books of Numbers, they flesh that out a little bit more. But the book of Joshua tells this. He records 40,000 troops from Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh from Machir crossed over the Jordan to prepare battle, to do battle with the Canaanites. So this is in the, the, the conquest of, of the land of, of Canaan. You know, 12 spies had gone in and come back, Joshua's faithful. And however, that only constituted 37% of the available fighting force. The book of Numbers uh, counts that up for us. And so what you have here is the Lord commands all of their fighting men, all of their men of valor to go, of cro- to go across, but only 37% do, only 40,000. And so already by this time, there, there's this attrition amongst the people of Israel in these tribes on the east side of the Jordan, not following God's word, um, not not doing what what He says, and that never bodes well. So I think we can assume to a certain degree 
that uh, like I think in my mind, if I walk through the Red Sea with walls of water on my left, on my right, my feet were not stuck in the mud and this big uh, pillar of uh, cloud and fire was going before us. Now it's behind us, uh, keeping Pharaoh and all of his army away from us. And we get across the Red Sea and then it all close, closes in. Um, I think I would believe in everything that God says and that Moses would say to you come to the foot of Mount Sinai, the, the mountains on fire. Moses goes up, gets the law, comes back. Um, you see God's power. You're in the in the wilderness and manna comes raining down or uh, the quail come raining down. Manna is there, too. You're fed, you're provided, uh, you're um, you, you survive. Like, why don't these Israelites believe? I don't know. I don't know why they don't. But there's already an attrition in this time just a number of short years in their actions of, of belief. Um, then kind of uh, getting towards the end of the reading that you had here, uh, the, uh, uh, verse 21, eyes have seen the conquest. I commanded Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. And reference what I said just a, a minute ago. So the Lord will do to all the kingdoms to which you are crossing. So there's, the Lord is saying to, or Moses is saying to Joshua, um, you have seen all that God has done for Og, this great uh, giant of a man, and how all of this land has been given him. So take courage, Joshua, take courage, take courage as you go back in. And don't fear, for it's the Lord your God who fights for you. And I think that that, that, that phrase is fulfilled in the name of Jesus Christ here now in the New Testament. Uh, getting back to my uh, little excursus there about the cult and, and stuff, um, Luther says in the large catechism, and it's, it's accounted by, by many pastors, many people, is that um, uh, Philippians 2.10, I believe it is, that the name of Jesus every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth shall bow. So the, the power that we have in that which fights for us, the Lord who fights for us, it's the name of Jesus. It's the name of Christ. And so that's why when we wake up in the morning, we are um, uh, called to remember our baptisms, make the sign of the cross. Uh, we're uh, called upon, we were um, bidden by the word of the Lord to call upon the name of the Lord in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. It's the name of the Lord Jesus that fights for us. And, and I think we can take great comfort as we take up that name, as we take up our baptismal identity, uh, to have courage in, in all of our aspects in life or the the evil one fights against us, uh, trying to pull us and the world around us into chaos. Um, the name of Jesus brings brings victory, brings forgiveness, and brings order to us. That's right. We see that the Lord is indeed doing the fighting for us, and in these last days, that's through Jesus. Let's look now for verses 23 through 29. As I pleaded with Yahweh at that time, saying, O Lord Yahweh, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. 
But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. That's the end of our chapter for today and our text for this morning. So yeah, here we are. Moses is forbidden. Uh, We already knew that, but here he is recalling to the Israelites the time when he asked God if he could go over, and he's once again told, no, quit talking to me about it. (laughs) <laughs> That's a, a frank way to, to put it there. Uh, so Moses is in uh, the land of Pishka there, um, opposite uh, of east of Jericho. Um, there's a kind of a neat quote here uh, in the Lutheran Study Bible from Luther on verse 26, uh, talking about the Lord's anger. Um, and he says this, he says, uh, but why is the prayer of Moses not heard? since it is likely that he prayed in the Spirit. This is written for our example and consolation. For even though the Lord does not hear him and causes Moses to realize that he is angry with him, as he says here, nevertheless, he does not desert him. He commands him to climb the mountain and view the land and give orders to Joshua. So, since we do not know in what manner we should pray, let us not be surprised if we are not heard. At the same time, however, Let us in no wise doubt that we are favored by God, dear to God. Let us grasp at the favor beneath the wrath, lest we lose heart. So Moses gives us this example of being upset with God, not understanding all the ways of God here in in this instance, his justice. Uh, Yet the Lord doesn't desert him, um, and the Lord still speaks to him. And you know, I think there's times in our in our life and our faith where we think, "Oh, God's not hearing my prayers. He's he, he's not. This great tragedy has befallen me. I don't I don't think He's just." And so the devil, I think, uses that to to make us despair and to think that God has has deserted us. And so that's why we always go back to Jesus, as Jesus says, "Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age." And so we cling to that which we know uh, is most sure and true, and that's His name upon us in baptism. It's His. His body and blood given to us to strengthen us in this in this world of um, of chaos when we don't know where to go. Yeah. Um, now he but, says. Now Luther says that the Lord did not hear Moses. I get this inst- distinct impression that the Lord heard. He just said no. Is that just wait Luther's way of saying that the Lord answered no? That he did not hear the prayer. I mean, how, yeah, how he he yeah that? he didn't answer in kind. Uh, the, the the way that. Um, that Moses wanted him to answer, but he's got a bigger picture to it. And so we, we always need to remember that God is God. We are not, but he's always working for our good in the moment uh, when our hearts hurt. Uh, it's hard for us to, to know and realize that God is still working for our good. And so that's why it's beneficial to memorize Romans eight twenty eight that we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And um, how do we know God loves us? Well, look at the cross. You look at Jesus. All of Scripture points to Jesus. Um, it's not us upon that cross paying for our own sins, but the only Son of God. It's not us, you and I, who have been uh, forsaken by God when we think he doesn't hear us. No, it was his Son, Jesus Christ, who speaks from the cross as the Father turns his back on him because of the sins of the whole world. As he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the answer to that, quite frankly, is, well, son, I've forsaken you so that I won't forsake Phil. So I won't forsake Matthew. So I won't forsake Bill and Jane and John and Susie and all these other, all the people who have been called by his name uh, because he cannot forget those 
whom he has given um, into into the shepherd's hands and into the Lord's hands. Uh, so there's uh, there's good comfort for us, and as we wrestle with um, maybe the hiddenness of God or or the wrath of God. Um, if it's okay, I want to talk a little bit about the um, how many minutes do we have left here? Oh, we have about ten minutes. Ten minutes. Sorry, period. Uh, about Moses and the rock and why he was prohibited from going over into the promised land. So uh, Moses had struck the rock before at Horeb, right? So Exodus chapter 17, uh, verse 6, uh, Scripture says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so. In the sight of the elders of Israel, they called that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. So there's, in, in both instances here, the next one I'm going to share you, there's this, this theme of grumbling. Then we get uh, Numbers 20, uh, which Moses references here in, in Deuteronomy as well. So Moses, uh, Numbers 20 starts off with the death of Miriam. So Moses is, is mourning her death, and then the people start grumbling and they start quarreling with with Moses and they said oh I wish that we had perished with our brothers uh, uh, when our brothers perished before the Lord why have you brought this whole assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here both we and our cattle uh, we want to go back to Egypt in other words and so the the Lord instructs Moses now uh, to take up his staff and speak to the rock so verse uh, verse 10 of Numbers 20. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water out for you of this rock, or, uh, out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, not once, but twice. The water came out abundantly, the congregation drank, and their livestock. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Now, functionally speaking, and there's always this temptation uh, to be the, the pragmatic pastor, uh, to just do whatever works. Okay, so I struck the rock before, uh, mad, I'm going to strike the rock not once, but two times because I'm doubly mad now. There's people quarreling against me, grumbling, I just can't handle it. This is like, I'm assuming Moses is... Uh, inner discourse in his mind. and But he doesn't listen to the word of the Lord, which was just speak to the rock, and it will come out. And and so uh, I, I think my friend Brian Wolfmuller, he, he's got a, a kind of an out, out a weird, out, a, a kind of far out theory on this, but maybe there's some value to it. Uh, and, he, and he takes it within the context of the holy conversation, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In how uh, created the world, you know, they're all there in Genesis 1 and 2. And then, uh, you know, the fall into sin happens in Genesis 3. And then we have the promise of a Savior, of the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. And somewhere in there, this plan of salvation uh, of Jesus on the cross, of the Son becoming incarnate, must have, have, have come along. And we see that plan that must have been developed by the time Moses and the Israelites are in the wilderness, because the Lord instructs Moses to uh, make the tabernacle and all the furnishings of the tabernacle 
uh, the ark, the lampstand, the brazen uh, altar where the, the meat is, is, is killed and grilled and offered as sacrifice upon and burnt up. Uh, you have the, the bronze laver, which is the, like a baptismal font that every priest and everything that was holy had to be had to be washed in. You had the altar of incense, the bread of the table of showbread. Then you have Jesus in his ministry, all the I am statements. I am the bread of life, uh, fulfilling the the the, the the table of showbread in the tabernacle. I am the light of, of, of the world. The light, no darkness can overcome. Um, that he is the menorah, the seven golden lampstand uh, that lights the, the whole area in the, the presence of, of God. You have the altar of incense where the prayers ascend. Jesus says, pray in my name and the Father will hear you. He says, baptize, um, fulfilling the bronze laver. He is the sacrifice, the brazen, brazen altar of, of the cross. And, uh, and then you have the, the presence of God there in the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, with the cherubim, you know, standing uh, vigil guard over it, sentry guard over it. And there in that mercy seat of God is where the, the, the blood is thrown in place to be the atonement of the sins of the people. And that's the, the blood of Christ then uh, that pleads for us, for God's mercy that covers us and makes us now holy. Um, the blood better than the, um, the blood of Abel. Um, it is the blood of the second Adam, uh, the one who takes away the sins of the whole world to cover over for the one who brought sin into the whole world. And so you, then, then paired together with 1 Corinthians 10, where uh, St. Paul says this fantastic thing. I, I wish we had more commentaries, probably burned down when the, the great um, library at Alexandria burned down. Uh, but he says, uh, the rock that followed them was Christ. And uh, so the the rock that gave water from the wilderness, Paul says, was Christ. And so the Lord tells Moses, this is Wolf Mueller's gig. Uh, he says, the Lord tells Moses, speak to the rock. Don't strike the rock because the rock is Christ. And that rock will be stricken upon the cross for the sins of the whole world. Uh, so Wolf Miller's kind of musing on this is that um, Moses messed up God's prefiguring of Christ being being struck. That uh, wasn't the time for him to be struck to provide life for his chosen people, and so that's why his punishment was uh, was quite harsh. I, I don't know. I think that's it's an interesting just, perspective for yeah, sure. Food for thought. Interesting yeah, perspective. Absolutely. Well, oh. as we come to the close of our show, though, I, I do want to give you an opportunity to just some parting words before we go. Yeah, so I, I came across this terrible quote the other day. Um, I say terrible because it struck far too close to home um, mm -hmm. about grumbling. I was, I was reading Chrysostom, uh, one of his sermons from Philippians chapter 2. So Chrysostom was an early church father. He was uh, the golden mouth. Uh, because he was so articulate. And he was talking about grumbling. But the grumbling was the first thing that that led people away from God. And as they went away from him, his hand of, of, of judgment came down upon them. And I think there's a lot for us to learn on this, that we don't let grumbling take over our hearts and our minds, but that uh, we might uh, uh, use our, our hearts, our, the words of our mouth to give praise and thanks to God and not grumble against him. And so Chrysostom says this, he says, when one does something voluntarily and not under compulsion, why grumble, right? You, you chose to do it, he said. He said, it's better for you to do no work than to do it with grumbling. 
the very thing that we do is destroyed. I don't know how many times I've told my kids, I'd rather have you not do the dishes at all. It's going to grumble like that. <laughs> or do you not see that in your own, uh, in your own homes, we often say, better that this be not done than done with grumbling. And many times we choose to be deprived of a service rather than put up with grumbling. For grumbling is terrible. Yes, a terrible thing. It's akin to blasphemy. The grumbler is ungrateful to God. And the one who is ungrateful to God is a blasphemer. So uh, my encouragement for all myself, for you, uh, for all the listeners out there, is to take this, this word of warning from the people of the Old Testament, this wisdom from, from Chrysostom, that uh, we might guard our hearts uh, to not grumble, but to be grateful in all circumstances. And I think we can be, because our sins are forgiven. We have Jesus who is with us now. He is our defender. He fights for us. And in fact, he has forgiven us our sins and opened up unto us the, the way of everlasting life. So keep, keep searching after, keep uh, looking into the truth of Jesus, his word always revealed to us in the Old Testament. It comes to us um, in the word and the sacrament and how he has promised us his Holy Spirit, which we have to comfort us and to bring us into all truth. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank my guest this morning. It's been the Reverend Matthew Worm, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Brookings, South Dakota. Once again, pastor, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Hopefully it won't be another two years before you're back on. I looked it up. It's, it was 2021 when you were last on with Brady. Uh, yep. Folks, uh, tomorrow we uh, keep on going. We're going to open up Deuteronomy chapter 4 with the Reverend Jeremy Swim. Deuteronomy 4 serves as a powerful exhortation from Moses to the Israelites, urging them to obey God's laws faithfully as they stand on the brink of entering the promised land. Moses emphasizes the uniqueness of their relationship with God, who has revealed himself and his statutes to them. He warns them against, well, the usual things, idolatry mostly, reminding them of the consequences of forsaking God, evidenced by what's happened to them in the past. Moses also encourages the Israelites to see their obedience to God's commandments as wisdom and understanding, even in the eyes of other nations. So it's going to be that and a lot more tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org slash store.